The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and the following is part two of a three-part interview with Jeremy Gilbert about his new book co-authored with Alex Williams, Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back. In this episode we discuss what Jeremy and Alex call actually existing neoliberalism, the distinct form of the ideology fostered by the hegemony of finance and big tech through the 80s, 90s and 2000s. We also talked about how neoliberal ideology was propagated as much through material practices as through the mass media, and we touched on the transformative effects of neoliberal ideology on music culture. Finally, we discussed the Gramscian concepts of common sense and good sense. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO's supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past by Robert Bevan. Statues, heritage and the built environment have become the battleground for the culture wars. Monumental Lies explores the threats to our understanding of the built environment and how it impacts on our lives, as well as offers solutions to how to combat ideological manipulation. Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past by Robert Bevan is out now from Verso Books, and part of the Verso Book Club October reading. And now to today's interview. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London and the author of Common Ground, Democracy and Collectivity in an Age of Individualism and 21st Century Socialism. His most recent book, co-authored with Alex Williams, and the topic of our conversation is Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back. If you'd like to hear the extended two-hour length version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. In the second chapter of the book, you focus on neoliberalism as the rainy ideology that enabled and helped to reproduce the hegemony of tech and finance. But you argue for a focus on what you call actually existing neoliberalism, as opposed to being too preoccupied with the chapter and verse of the theoretical works of key neoliberal thinkers like uh, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises and and Milton Freeman and and, and so on. Can you explain what for you are the the hallmarks of neoliberalism in practice? Well, in a sense, the hallmark of it is, is the interest that it serves. I mean, from this properly materialist perspective. So to some extent, actually existing neoliberalism is just the name for the assemblage of institutions and programmes and projects which this historic block of tech and finance you know, has implemented and, it, and in which its, its political agents have implemented on its behalf. 
But the key features of it are the ones that are recognisable from any undergraduate definition of neoliberalism as a policy programme. It's lowering taxes, especially corporate taxes. It's a legislation and political action to weaken the power of organised labour. It's a legislation and political action to um, facilitate uh, flows of labour and fl flows of goods uh, to the extent that flows of labour, allowing labour to flow, puts downward pressure on wages. And to facilitate flows of goods to the extent that, you know, facilitating flows of goods increases profitability. And on an, it's, um, it's about uh, promoting competition and promoting a model of entrepreneurial co competition and competitiveness as a sort of social norm which all individuals and all institutions ought to exhibit in some sense, even institutions which historically might have been thought of as ones which it would be very inappropriate you know, for those norms to be applied to, like schools and hospitals. So, you know, you get a situation where, you know, even nurses, you know, are expected to somehow think of themselves as entrepreneurs in competition with each other. And teachers is a very striking example. So I think, they, I think those are all the key features. And they certainly do resonate in really important ways with the classic neoliberal programme and ideology as, as set out by people like Hayek. I think... The focus for us is, you know, on, as David Harvey put it in his you know, short book on neoliberalism from a few years ago, that, you know, it's to understand actually existing neoliberalism as essentially a project of class power. You know, it's a project for, to restore the power of the prestige that finance capital lost in 1929. And it draws on, you know, Hayekian and post-Hayekian rhetoric and ideas or, or the rhetoric ideas of people like Buchanan and the Human Capital School or public choice theory, it, it draws on them precisely and only to the extent that it, they can serve that purpose of restoring the class power of finance capital. And of course, we see after 2008 that almost all of the neoliberal uh, ideas about the, free, the rigours of the free market and the importance of government not interfering and moral hazard go completely out of the window uh, where as soon as the uh, class power of finance capital is threatened by you know the their <laughs> the, the idiocy of their own practices and their consequences and they've also ignored those strands of neoliberal thought which aren't particularly conducive to their program like the the german auto liberals with their opposition to monopoly capitalism that's you know obviously not going to be very conducive to the project of, of monopoly um, tech jobs. No, exactly. I mean, anti-monopoly rhetoric and legislation has been used only to the extent that it justified asset stripping and not at all to prevent the formation of monopolies. I mean, it just hasn't been yeah. done at all, you know. Even if some of those neoliberal thinkers genuinely, that was genu you know, a core part of their programme, they genuinely believed that it was important. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's, you know, even, you know, neolib there were variations between the neoliberal thinkers and there were the ones who believed in a sort of Adam Smith, G.K. Chesterton utopia of small businesses selling things to each other. And those guys were always kind of idiots, really. I mean, they just those people just have no conception of how capitalism actually works historically and in all actually existing situations. And then there was also, I, I mean, I take quite seriously the view I take from people like, you know, Will Davis and, and Melinda Cooper and that, you know, if you look at closely at people like Hayek, then, well, I mean, I think Hayek did was just fundamentally an elitist, ultimately. He did believe, you know, he sort of did believe that you should have an entrepreneurial elite and an authoritarian state running the world. And to that extent, 
you know, to that extent, there isn't that much, a huge gap between what was done and, and what he wanted. But that's because to some extent, he was just a sort of conservative. And that's what conservatives, you know, conservatives have all, the base, the, the baseline of conservatism has always been the belief in the value of hierarchy and established authority. To back up your argument that neoliberalism in, in practice has sometimes paid fairly glancing attention to the body of neoliberal theory, you pointed to the example of, of China and you emphasise that in China, theoretical neoliberalism has, has played a pretty minor role. But couldn't it be argued that China paid less attention to neoliberal doctrine, partly because it was able to look at real world examples of market reform that had already been adopted elsewhere? And so didn't need to go back to the to the theory. Uh, and also, obviously, this is the Chinese Communist Party. They have uh, legitimacy questions if they too explicitly acknowledge their debt to neoliberal thought. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, all of that is true. All of that is correct. But that is that is just a justification for talking about you know actually existing neoliberalism. For talking about neoliberalism as a set of programs rather than a distinctive intellectual genealogy. If you see what I mean. Even when we were doing the book, actually, it was, we really found it impossible to get any clear uh, answer from anybody who, who was an expert on the subject about to what extent were Chinese economic reformers um, actually looking at you know, neoliberal economics. And I think now there has been more work published on the question of what Chinese economists were actually reading and thinking about in the 80s and 90s in particular and the most of the evidence is yeah, they did they did they paid some attention to things like sort of british firm theory which you know theories of the of how firms work which has some sort of relationship to this is ronald coe's i think so yeah but for the most part for the most part they they weren't really really they they don't seem to have been and and they they were observing the way in which market reforms worked in the country, but who is? I can't remember the name of that. Oh, Isabella Weber. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. So I'm the Isabella Weber on, on, on the show. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, so you know, and it's clear from the Isabella Weber book. You, as you say, they were looking at what was happening in the West, but they were looking at the at what was happening in the West and in and in Russia and the former Soviet Union as much to, to see what to avoid as to see what to do. Um. So I, I yeah I, I mean it's very it's still very intriguing what's happened in China and and the you know the Weber book to me it, it does a little bit you know lend some credence to the idea which is you it's very widely dismissed and which I think one does have to be skeptical about that well, they're really I mean they are basically still Marxists the Chinese Communist Party but they, they're Marxists who drew the conclusion that the Maoist and Leninist experiments in bypassing the capitalist stage of development had failed so their task was to oversee as rapidly as possible you know the the creation of a capitalist class and the you know the uh, facilitation of capital accumulation um, in order to be able to defend themselves from the sort of neo-imperialism of the united states which is a perfectly rational conclusion to draw uh, from a certain kind of Marxist perspective, if you're you know, running China in the mid 1980s, well, it's, it's very strange, isn't it? Because it's seen as this project of reform, and obviously, in many ways, it many ways it was. But in terms of Marxist ideology, it's, it's a repudiation of Maoism, and in some ways, a, a return to, to some extent to Stalinism in the idea of that you know you need to build up the productive forces. Obviously, Stalinism didn't have the opening to the market, but but nonetheless, it's uh, yeah, 
Um, well, even when more than start, I mean, it's arguably just a, just a return to that sort of a you know a sort of a classical Marxism, almost a sort of vulgar Marxism, almost. It's arguably a return to that. It's a repudiation of Leninism as well, because Leninism is also based on the idea that you could essentially bypass capitalist industrialization by creating this historic block out of peasants and workers and the Communist Party. And Stalin is trying to kind of build on that. But they're saying, no, you have to have, you, you just have to have, for a while, you have to have a, a capitalist class. You have to have a bourgeoisie because only a dynamic, rich, greedy, self-interested bourgeoisie will, will engage in capital accumulation with sufficient energy and alacrity to build up the productive forces in that way. I mean, I have no idea. I can't claim to have any idea like if, if that is really part of their motivation or really what they're doing. But... Uh, in some ways, it's the simplest explanation that that you know the, the idea that what that that's what they're doing is the simplest explanation for what's happening because just comes back to your question if you if we look uh, uh, we look at in detail about the way in which their market reforms were implemented they do seem to have been implemented very consistently with that objective rather than with the objective of you know deregulating markets for the sake of doing so or out of any belief that doing so was an end, was a good end in itself which would be more sort of consistently neoliberal. So, I mean, I would say we are quite ambivalent about the question of whether you can, you should or should not include China in actually existing neoliberalism. So when I first formulated that phrase, actually existing neoliberalism a few years ago, uh, and also I'm sure I'm not the only person who's ever used it, but I, I formulated it without having seen anyone else use it at the time. I was really thinking about the fact that David Harvey includes, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping's market reforms in his book about the the origins of neoliberalism, and he really doesn't address one way or another the question of whether they were reading Hayek. He's not interested in that. And his position is basically if it walks like a duck and it you know quacks like a duck, it's a duck. You know, if it involves massive cuts in welfare, you know, restrictions on labour organising and expansion of the private sector. Uh, then it, it's neoliberalism. And it was when I was teaching that to students, actually, I started to use the phrase actually existing neoliberalism to include and all that. But, that. but that was, you know, several years ago. And I think subsequent to that, and sort of especially after looking at the the, the Isabella Weber book, actually, I've, and after reading work by people like Martin Jakes, his book When China Rules the World, I mean, Alex and I have become a bit more circumspect about going along with the idea that you can really categorise China as part of neoliberalism and maybe one reason would be the fact that we do for example argue that a key feature of actually existing neoliberalism is the existence of this particular professional political class you know that is represented by the Blairs and the Clintons and the Obamas of the world and which you know isn't is represented in Britain very much by Starmer and his followers but and his and his advocates but for the most part seems to have really you know, gone into some kind of crisis in the aftermath of 2008. Um, and and I would say that China doesn't have that. China has something very different. You know, it has a Communist Party, which is not that it, it... Of course, it is a political class, but it's a very different type of political... And it is, it is a professional managerial technocratic class, but it works in very different terms. And in, in particular... And, it, you know, it also... You could say that, like the professional political class, its legitimacy is basically dependent upon you know, in increasing people's capacity to consume. But from what I understand about what's going on in China is there's much, its legitimacy is far more dependent 
upon a sense of a, a very large-scale collective national project and a kind of long-term collective national project. And that is absolutely antithetical, actually, to the ideology of the neoliberal political class in the West, which is absolutely about you know, short-term results and you know, effectively just guaranteeing people's capacity to consume luxuries like within a very short time frame. Uh, and that's very different. I mean, the ideology in China is much more about this very long-term project of sort of civilizational reconstruction. You go on in the second chapter to discuss the role of ideological warfare in propagating neoliberalism, both at the institutional level and in terms of how people conceive of themselves and their place in the economic order. Although you're at pains to emphasise that that's not the only way in which that occurs, that also physical coercion technological innovation and institutional reform also play key roles in the reproduction of the neoliberal order. But on ideology specifically, so there is a kind of everyday understanding of the term that sees ideological indoctrination as a process, particularly occurring through engagement with mass media, of creating a false picture of the world or social reality in order for elites or or the ruling class to realise their goals. But you write that the real purpose of ideology is not best registered at the level of truth or falsehood, but at the level of social effectiveness and the realisation of interests. Can you explain what you're getting at there? Yeah, sure. So uh, that statement and that chapter is partly drawing on a, a tradition of thinking about the role of ideology or the concept of ideology in Marxist theory, which I would say goes back really to the 60s in particular, although we would also cite Gramsci as like its key antecedent. And it's a tradition which, broadly speaking, doesn't want to completely reject the category of ideology or even the, the idea of false consciousness. Um, although in some cases, you do people do end up just saying it's a useless concept but which also stresses the extent to which, well, a lot of the time, people don't behave in the way that revolutionary Marxists would like them to behave for all kinds of other reasons than them simply believing what they're told by the ruling class. Even at the level of belief, you know, just the question of what it means to believe something, what it means to agree with something, or just go along with something is, is more complicated than that model you refer to often implies. So... It's not that people are not just are not just sort of fed direct propaganda by the ruling class. I mean, they are, and in the case of you know the neoliberalisation of of mass media content, is a really obvious phenomenon from about the early nineties onwards. You know, you see the shift, and we talk about this in the book. You see the rise of like reality TV. You see, you know, the the, dom- the mainstream of like hip hop becoming, you know, effectively a vehicle for a sort of black neoliberal ideology, which incidentally is something that's often considered a bit dodgy for like white critics to say in Britain, but in the States, it's just normal. It's just the normal, you know, understanding of the situation on the part of like leftist black critics. So you, so that's definitely the case. But then, but then the question is always, well, how do we think people generally actually relate to that? So people know they're living in this culture where they're constantly being told, well, this is how the world is. The world is this kind of war of all against all in which you have to be a competitive entrepreneur. You have to hustle or die. And 
some people just believe it or they just believe it for some of their lives. And you can certainly, I would certainly say, you know, for example, young people with relatively low education are, are very vulnerable to at least for some portion of their life just believing this story about the world and, and trying to act in accordance with it. But broadly speaking, we think most of the evidence is that it's not the case that most people believe it. Uh, it's, it is the case that key strategic sections of the populations believe it, uh, and in particular, sort of the ruling class and you know the class layers sort of just below them, who are like their main agents and lieutenants in society. Like they have to sort of believe it to some extent. And again, this is something Marxist theorists of ideology in the 20th century argued over sometimes. The question of, well, is the main function of ideology to delude the masses or is it to provide a kind of esprit de corps for the ruling class themselves? Uh, and I think we do lean a bit in the, in the latter direction. If you, um, and so what that means is for the most part, we think most people's relationship to that hegemonic ideology is not one of simply believing it to be true, to be a true depiction of the world, but rather recognising it as a, a way of understanding the world and a way of a set of codes for behaving in the world to which they are obliged to defer because the most powerful groups in society either believe it or insist on behaving as if they do. Mm. And so an example of that might be, and I think you've made this example yourself, of the universities where at the managerial level and you know vice chancellors and, and those sort of people they're fully on board with the ideology and, and work towards its propagation in a very concrete fashion whereas university professors and so on they may accept what they have to do they accept the targets not with enthusiasm but they continue to do what they need to do to hold on to their jobs with varying degrees of contestation and and, and so on but they're not fully paid up members of uh, of the ideology yeah exactly exactly and i think it's this idea of deference is very important to the way we conceptualise hegemony, actually. The, the idea of a hegemonic common sense or a hegemonic ideology is often a question of not what, what people actually believe to be true, but what beliefs they recognise a, a certain need for them to defer to. I mean, it's interesting to sort of think about this in relation to like history of, of earlier epochs as well. It's something that social and cultural historians will point out, that we just we don't really know like to what extent like medieval peasants actually believed the picture of the world they were given by the church or the aristocracy. And there's some evidence that, for the most, that a lot of them didn't really. But, um, but they only very rarely went into kind of revolutionary or quasi-revolutionary revolt. I mean, they seem to have, you know, and, you know, there's some reason to think that they recognised a sort of feudal Christian ideology as something they had to defer to rather than something they actually believed in in some sense. So I think this isn't only a feature of our moment. Although, compare, as we were talking about last time, I think there is a contrast between the neoliberal period and you know the, the glorious 30 years, as the French call it, after World War II, when a, a sort of more or less social democratic version of welfare capitalism became the normative, you know, became widely accepted on an, as the sort of social project which most people were committed or which, which most people were happy with and there was a more sort of enthusiastic endorsement from larger numbers of people for that but I suppose my point here is it's worth keeping in mind is probably on a historical level and this is a point one can never make enough actually it's that it's that mid mid to late 20th century period which is historically exceptional it's less historically exceptional to have a situation in which there's a hegemonic ideology which probably most people in the society themselves do not actually believe in. 
uh, but recognise that they have to defer to, then it is to have one within which people, you know, then it has to have a, have a hegemonic ideology, which is actually a, a sort of shared, a genuinely shared common sense for, the, for an actual majority of the population. Presumably that means then that institutions and people engaged in the propagation of, of ideology have a lot more sort of heavy lifting to do in the neoliberal era than in the, the earlier post-war era. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, that's probably one reason you can say that in the, if you think about the kind of political content of public culture, I mean, there's clearly a kind of narrowing. And it's one of the things that cultural critics, I mean, if you think about people like Mark Fisher, I think we're really sort of pointing to actually to in the period from really the, the first decade or so of the 21st century, that there was this quite striking narrowing of the content of mass culture as that heavy lifting has to be undergone because you you can't allow a real pluralism you can't allow real debate in a situation in which well actually you the the, the ruling political project is one that most people clearly don't want and so you can't you can't have it really being publicly acknowledged that this is a political choice there's a political choice to implement this program rather than just bowing to the inevitable so yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I think it's you know it's maybe worth saying for for younger listeners who didn't live through it, but the nineties was kind of extraordinary in the, in the the extent to which notions of of, of socialism w- were treated as just just laughable and ludicrous and incredibly embarrassing, and and the culture was really sort of hermetic in that way. There was just nothing outside of it. Yes, it's true. <clears throat> that's completely true. But that also gets registered across sort of popular culture to some extent. The idea that you're going to have like difficult plays or you know complex narratives on screen you know really disappears from sort of british uh, tv culture for example for the most part i mean then it pops up again weirdly for there's a whole other story and kind of american prestige tv for a while um, but that's a, um but yeah no that's yeah that's totally true and then of course i mean really I mean, if you think about something like music culture, I mean, from a contemporary vantage point, the music culture of that period is is just a mixture of a sort of abject escapism or nostalgia or nostalgia for the late sixties, basically. So, I'd say one thing actually before about just thinking about this question of the relationship between people and their uh, and the, the sort of hegemonic common sense, I, and I think this is following on from what you were just saying actually that. The way we see it is there is a, there's an important sort of feedback loop between the experiences that people actually have of, say, the neoliberal labour market and the story they get told by things like television. I think it is a really key experience that people have when they're li- you know, within neoliberal culture that, on the one hand, they experience, say, the labour market and everyday social life as increasingly fragmented, individualised, competitive, brutal... And then they get exposed to cultural forms, you know, whether it's reality, you know, my two favourite examples, like reality TV or, or gangster rap, which constantly also in very diegetic, very didactic terms tell them, yes, this is what life is like. It, it cannot be any other way. You have to, you just have to accept this is what life is like. And it does produce in people, I think it produces a certain sense of, it's sort of comforting. It's comforting in a way, because it's a way of managing the cognitive dissonance between the way we have to experience the, the world of neoliberal capitalism and really the fact that like every human society in history that we know of every human culture has produced ethical codes and ethical sets of norms which would tell you that this is just a horrible way to have to live and, and not how people should have to live 
it is quite normal for people to have this sort of thought in their head that they said, which, oh, well, yeah, this is just how life is. You know, this is just how life has to be. You just have to accept it, even though it's suboptimal in various ways. And that is a kind of false consciousness. And it is, I mean, it can't, you know, it is at the level of interests. It is a narrowing of the scope of people's ability to conceptualise their interests insofar as people are encouraged to accept and are rewarded for accepting a situation in which the only version of their interests which they are capable of realising is their interest as privatised, individualised, competitive consumers. And, you know, people do actually get physically, materially rewarded for behaving in such a way that that's the only aspect of your potential as a human being which you make any attempt to realise or manifest in the world. So yeah, you really do get, if if you're competitive and, and entrepreneurial enough, you do get the job, you do get the money, you do get the luxurious lifestyle to a large extent. Right? And, um, you know, or if you're, you know, if you're a kind of, uh, if you're in living a very poor young man in an urban environment, you know, you really do get some status and, you know, some access to luxury goods if you engage in various forms of criminal activity for a while anyway so it so it does become it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy and there it's not that there is no aspect of what we of false consciousness to this situation that there is an aspect of false consciousness simply in the in the to the extent that the idea that this is historically inevitable that this is a this is an invariable historical norm that people live this way is demonstrably untrue to anyone who knows enough history or anthropology or sociology and people are are encouraged to believe that to be the case but as i think i've made clear now that's only one element of the overall situation by which people are sort of brought into compliance with those hegemonic norms and the fact that apart from a very small number of people most uh, people even at the height of the neoliberal era weren't thinking behaving in an entirely sort of self-interested way is a good thing but as you say it's it's the only way to actually operate in this society even if i don't like it reveals the limits of the entire project that if you could open up other potentialities or make people believe that there were other potentialities then, then people might be attracted to them yeah absolutely yeah absolutely where for you does the news media fit into the picture because obviously it's something that people on the left spend you know a lot of time thinking about and complaining about and you know I'd absolutely include myself in that but is your view that we perhaps spend too much time thinking about the news media and that actually its effects are overstated somewhat uh, well that's always an interesting question i mean there is i mean one of the persistent claims of the tradition of marxist cultural studies for example is that well, apart from anything else, people don't watch the you know people don't even watch the news that much, and that you know in in some ways it's more important to get people to realise the extent to which like reality TV is trying to sell them a, a version of a version of social reality which is untrue and unhelpful. But on the other hand, I think you have to say that um, for certain key groups of, of voters, in particular, if we're thinking about people's voting behaviour, news media do play a really crucial role, and. Yeah, they do play a really crudely propagandistic role, to be honest, uh, in, in certainly in British political culture. So it's hard not to be obsessed with them, really. And, um, I mean, if anything, I would say that it, it's important, as well as developing complex and sophisticated theories of hegemony, ideology and common sense, it's also important to supplement that with the repeated observation that people are simply lied to by news media. 
and a lot there are there's a significant sections of the population who if they weren't being lied to by news media would behave differently um the thing that's always difficult about analysing the politics of news media is, is, I mean, liberal kind of media theorists are always trying to demonstrate that it doesn't really matter. You know, the news media don't really, they can, yeah, they really I mean, including can't. Including the journalists themselves. They, they yeah. love to downplay their effects on the world, <laughs> which otherwise would seem, you know, quite a peculiar stance to take about your job. <laughs> well, no, well, that's just a very interesting point. They want to disclaim all responsibility. So, I mean, the, I, I'm sure somebody's written a book about this, probably somebody who I know personally, and I, I don't but I can't think of the book off the top of my head. Probably somebody at Cardiff um, or Goldsmiths. And, and and it's an interesting point, actually, that, you know, whereas journalists in, in up until sort of the sometime in the 90s had a very sort of um, strong professional ideology, which created a very, um, had a very high opinion of themselves. There was this whole idea of the, the fourth estate, you know, the idea that it was, a, it was an absolute pillar of democracy and independent media. And of course, one of the things that's happened to the culture of, of journalism and uh, professional journalism over the past few decades is they now is now the normative position is to completely disavow any sort of influence you may have. And of course, this is basically consistent with a set of neoliberal presumptions, which is basically that th there's really no such thing or no way of conceptualising the polity outside of the market. That really, what what happens in the world is just a, an aggregation of individual consumer preferences. So, journalists just write the stuff that readers want to read, and it's the reader's desire to read that stuff that makes them write it. In in effect, and so they themselves don't have any sort of uh, power at all. And I think it is consistent actually with the fact that it's also typical of neoliberal elite culture. The elites in general, perhaps for the first time in history. Uh, just somehow want to disavow their status as elites. They want they want to claim there are no they're not members of an elite. They're just individuals who happen to do well, you know, in the meritocratic competition of the labour market, and um, and they deserve their rewards as individuals, but as a, a, a coherent group, they don't even exist. So I think it's really consistent with that that journalists want to disavow uh, that any kind of influence they may have. The classic example I I still sometimes give to students of thinking about this question of the influence of the media was people after the I think the 92 general election when the Sun actually you know explicitly claimed to have won the election for the Tories an election that was widely expected it to was be the won Sun what, what won it yeah that was the headline it was the Sun what won it and it was pointed out by some uh, media theorists and analysts that in fact it was always the case that the majority of Sun readers voted Labour you know, despite the virulent pro-conservatism of, of the part of the paper, which was this was true, but it was also true. I mean, the counterpoint, which didn't get made as often in response to that, was that the given the demographics, the demographic profile of the Sun readership, it should have been like eighty percent voting Labour rather than like fifty odd percent voting Labour. And, you know, the devil is in the detail. It was that extra 20-odd percent of people who were recruited into sort of and, main, and had their position maintained within the ideology of working-class conservatism, uh, which really made the success of the Tory party uh, possible. And I think it is, it's always really important to have our heads around this point. You know, the, this is an issue which relates to all kinds of debates uh, about politics and culture at, at various levels, like on the left and elsewhere. They look... In a complex, quite fragmented society uh, with a highly imperfect system of representative democracy, then 
you, you know, it, obvious, winning political battles is very rarely about actually getting a majority of the people to agree with you about something. It's usually about putting together, it's about winning over key constituencies who have particular kinds of strategic leverage within the system. So, you know, there's this complete, I mean, I would, I mean, I've said this before in the show, and I'll probably say it multiple times again on the show, but, you know, the kind of mythology, there's the whole mythology of, of both on the left and in the wider polity about what happened in the 2019 election based on the fact that lots of formerly Labour constituencies went to the Tories. Whereas if you actually go and dig into the cephology, dig into what actually happened in those constituencies, well, a lot of it, well, it was very complicated. And, you know, and there are various cases in which, for example, it was the Lib Dem and Green vote going up by people who weren't happy that Labour, that, that despite the change in policy over the second referendum, like didn't feel that Labour had been sufficiently Remainist, you know, which t- took away the Labour majority in that constituency and handed the victory to the Tories, as much as it was people actually shifting their votes from Tory to Labour, from Labour to Tory. And the, the, I'm only saying this just to, to, as an illustration of the way in which you do, you really do always have to be thinking to some extent about, well, which constituencies are winning over. And and I think the issue with the power of the news media is that they inf- they have any demonstrable influence on a really small section of the population. You know, even amongst the working class conservatives, you do have to say, well, look, they have been work- died in the war working class Tories since the 1870s. And in fact, they've been a really significant section of the working class throughout the past century and a half that... There's a really brief period between the 40s and the 70s when Labour has just has a, has only just an actual majority of working class support of supposed working class people in the country, but it really lasts for barely one generation that period, and it, this is why Labour has always been dependent upon a social coalition of kind of progressive sections of the working class and of the professional classes, the kind of middle classes, the salariat. You know, it's always been. And and people are always observing that situation as if it's somehow new and as if there was some moment in the recent past when the working class all voted Labour, which has never, ever been true, never been the case. This is the narrative that Labour has become the party of the professional middle classes. Yeah, it's, which it's it always was. The, this the is the point. Class. Yeah. Yeah. And the point is it always was. Yeah. It was a, Labour could never have won an election ever without a big section of the professional middle class. And when they lost the, a big, when they lost a significant section of professional middle class support in the early 50s, that's why the Tories you know, won for the next 13 years. Anyway, the whole point about this is just that you know, you, when you're thinking about the the role of different uh, sections, uh, different you know, institutions in society, then often the role is to win over these key strategic sections. And it definitely is true that news media do have a really significant impact on a strategically crucial section of working class voters in particular, who are relatively who are historically relatively socially conservative, but their economic instincts are to the left. And it really is significant that, you know, that period I was talking about of working cl- actual majority working class support, only bare majority, but majority working class support for Labour was the period when the most po- the, the most widely read newspapers in the country were, were supporting Labour, uh, the, da- the Daily Herald and the Daily Mirror. And then uh, the Herald was bought by Rupert Murdoch, was rebranded as The Sun, he took The Sun Tory, and Labour never had majorities uh, working class support again so i think it is so you have to say the news media are significant and it really is 
I mean, again, the evidence is that you know there are there are there are loads of people who are just sort of conservatives and they're racists, and it would be very hard to get them to support a progressive project. But there is a significant minority, a small minority, maybe a few percentage points of the overall population. But that is enough to be absolutely to decide elections, like almost every time who are just mis genuinely misled by news media into believing a picture of social reality in which, for example, crime and immigration are much bigger threats to their kind of way of life and their security than any statistical understanding of the real situation would lead you to believe, and in which they're, they're just not aware of the level of active redistribution from the poor to the rich, which has constituted you know, the, the, a core programme of government for decades. So in all those regards, yeah, news media... I'm afraid are really important it's really boring to say so it's super boring to just say <laughs> yes I'm afraid the people who say it just you know the trouble is that the news media lie to people and it's much more and it's really it's much more sexy to be able to say well actually it's all about what happens on soap operas or reality tv or in music mm. and this and this can be why some people working in the field of cultural studies or Foucauldians can be a, a bit sniffy about that analysis well, it, yeah, it's true. I think it is just because it's boring, to be honest. I think people don't like you to talk about it because it's boring. Although also, I mean, to be honest, like, you know, for various contingent historical reasons, you know, cultural studies, people just don't really think much about, actually think much about mainstream politics, just about things like electoral politics. You know, they ha haven't really done since the days of, of, of Hall and Williams. So... Partly, partly because for large periods of the past few decades, probably as now, it's just been too depressing like, to think. <laughs> and, it is. and, you know, how many times, I mean, also just how much new, it, there's also a question of just how much new is there to say about the situation? Because the Daily Mail was lying to its readers in the 30s you know, and effectively promoting fascism. And the Daily Mail is lying to its readers now and effectively promoting fascism. And it's just sort of... Um, you know, there's only so many times you can make that point to people without wanting something else to talk about. Yeah, I mean, this this is entirely anecdotal, but my sense of the Daily Mail, which my Labour voting mother used to buy in the 90s, was that it wasn't particularly different from how it is now. It's just that it now seems to have a more visible impact on politics than appeared to be the case at the time in the 90s, though, of course, they were still sort of nurturing a constituency that then seems more dominant later on. Well, I don't. I even. I just. I think the mail, just in strategic terms, I think we do just overstate the importance of the mail for exactly that reason. The mail has always said the same stuff, and the vast majority of its readers have, have always voted Tory, and, and we're always going to. It's. I mean, the Sun is much more significant in terms of the Sun backing Tony Blair was really significant in the nineties, and it is true that the Sun, that Labour hasn't won an election since since the Sun went Tory again. So the Sun is much more significant, I think, because the Sun has always been positioned, has always addressed itself to that constituency of working class voters who historically have been movable between Tories and Labour. Whereas the Daily, I think it's largely, I mean, there are, you know, there is a tradition of Labour voting women reading the Mail because the Mail was understood to be the housewife's paper. Um but I don't think it's this, and I also I just sort of, it, it, it's sort of I now that we now that we're talking about it, I mean I sort of think the male has become this visible hate object because it's much easier. I mean it is just horrible. It's so horrible and hateful, and it's a sort of, but also because the Daily Mail's readership, it's historically it includes sections of the working class, but it's classically it's petty bourgeois. You know, it's landlords read the Daily Mail. It's not just you know people mm. who work in factories. So it's, or, so it's uncomplicated 
to slag off the male and by implication it's readership because that's who they are yeah exactly mm. whereas the sun i mean this is really this is a new i mean when i was a kid it was absolutely the sun that the left was worried about and it still is i mean it's not an accident you know the, the don't buy the sun campaign you know has been so successful in liverpool and and ha it has permanently shifted the political culture of the city to the left i mean the the, the, the idea of liverpool as a left-wing city was still a relatively novel concept in the 80s when militant uh, took over the council and the, and, the, and, and Liverpool did go Lib Dem during the Blair years, partly as a protest, partly because it, it had become a left-wing city and it was a protest against things like the Iraq War. But it's also the case, I, I would say, my sense is that Liverpool has become permanently like the most left-wing city in England, partly just because there was this mass boycott on, on the sun because of the perceived hostility of the sun to, you know, Liverpool supporters, you know, after the... Um, Hillsborough disaster. So I think you can, you've really got to say it's the so it is the and I think it is sort of um, yeah I, I think we have we it is kind of odd that we don't talk about the sun anymore. I mean I think maybe in numerical terms I think the sun readership to be fair actually to, to revise my position again though the sun, I think sun readership has declined more significantly. Uh, I, they haven't built up that, and their website isn't as big as the mail. I mean, the thing that the mail has really succeeded at is that their website has become huge. They turned their website into a website that uses celebrity gossip clickbait to pull people in and then gives them incredibly right-wing uh, news stories to read. Again, if we're talking about strategically crucial sections of the electorate, again, I'm now doing an auto-critique of what I just said. <laughs> the, uh, Ignore what Jeremy just said, everyone. Um, this is the, the revised, <laughs> accurate position. Well, it's also true that, um, I mean, the mail was always like the women's paper. It was the housewife's paper. And... You know, it's a big, big deal, you know, the, the, in terms of the demographics of the electorate, the fact that uh, women, a majority of women vote Tory up until the 92 election. And there's a huge swing to Labour among younger women. And then the age at which women, are, the crossover happens, the age at which women are more likely to vote Labour than Tory keeps going up and up. And Labour has a really solid majority amongst women all through the Blair years. The whole point of David Cameron, though nobody ever says this out loud, is to try to win back sort of middle-class women to the Tories. That's the whole point of the, the nice, nice David Cameron and the big society and all that nonsense. It was to win them back. And so it has become politically, strategically really, really important for the right to keep uh, women on board, enough women on board with them, because there are all kinds of social pressures in our society as to why women are more likely to vote for the left. You know, especially women with children, uh, they're likely to be have a, a experience more stress juggling work and home life, but they're also normally the people in the family who interface most with the public sector, you know, with the doctors and hospitals and schools. So there are all kinds of pressures like dragging women to the left. So it has become really important. And so and the Daily Mail as a sort of tool you know, feature of the hegemonic ecology, if you will. I mean, it's very precise stick is to use its website to drag in uh, relatively low information, low education women, working women, in, uh, rather than the housewives it traditionally was aimed at, with celebrity gossip in, on its webpage, and then have them read some sort of, you know, terrifying stories to try to convince them of conservative positions, especially around immigration and crime. So it does. So in that sense, it does play a really important role. Whereas I think the sun, the sun is in long term permanent decline, and it hasn't really. Its website doesn't have the kind of pull that the Daily Mail's does. 
on the particular character of neoliberal ideology of the late 90s and the early 2000s and, and the moment at which the ideology is, is, is most in tune with the desires of the tech sector and finance, you give the example of the speech that Tony Blair gave at the 2005 Labour Party conference, which you see as really emblematic of late neoliberal ideology. Can you say something about that speech and how it contrasts with the neoliberal ideology of the Thatcher and, and, and Major era? Yeah, sure. Well, so that speech was written by Philip Collins, a notorious Blairite, not Phil Collins, the singer, although I think their ideological positions are are relatively coterminous. (laughs) Well, yes. So, of course, well, famously, Thatcher, you know, has to marry her neoliberalism with appeals to various kinds of social conservatism and social authoritarianism. You know, and this is a point I'm always making. I mean, Thatcher can only get people to vote in the numbers that they do for her programme by promising that as well as smashing the unions and privatising public services, she will will, uh, restore the traditional family, which people perceive to be in decline. She will restrict immigration. And of course, there's the straight out material bribe of of basically giving people their council houses um, to own and speculate on and then resell back to landlords. And it's also the case that when Blair, you know, first gets elected, I mean, it's easy to forget this now, but he a strong, a sort of communitarian, an explicitly communitarian critique of neoliberalism and its effects, although he wouldn't have used the term neoliberalism, was absolutely central to the rhetoric and discourse of New Labour. Of course, I always make this point, look, it's just a feature of electoral politics everywhere in the world throughout the neoliberal period, that because neoliberalism is generally unpopular and because its if social effects are visible to everybody, any opposition party challenging for government has to make some sort of a communitarian appeal, whether from the right or the left. If you're on the right, you point to the deleterious effects on family life and community life of just whatever generally has been happening recently. Like You can't ever name neoliberalism or capitalism as the causes, but you point to the bad things that are happening and, and claim somehow you're going to do something about them. And if you're on the left, well, you, 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 you can make some sort of vague promise to start restoring social democracy. And this is just invariable. Invariably, this is what opposition parties uh, during the neoliberal period will all, in any country, will always claim. They'll always claim they're going to be they're somehow going to mitigate the anti-communitarian, anti-collectivist, anti-social features of neoliberal capitalism. But that is really a, an important part of Blair's discourse. In the period between him becoming leader and getting elected, 94 to 97, drops off pretty quickly after he becomes elected. I mean, all that's left of it soon after he gets elected is the social con- authoritarianism. You know, the introduction of anti-social behaviour orders. Yeah, yeah. The... Anti the anti-immigrant rhetoric, which is all firmly, that is all firmly aimed at uh, preventing the Daily Mail from dissuading too many people to go uh, from going out to vote against them. Of course, in actual voting terms, I mean, it's always worth remembering that you know the, the, one of the bases for Blair getting elected is a huge is a collapse in voter participation between ninety two and ninety seven. So a lot of it is about you know, demoralising or or sort of neutralising potential opposition among young people from the left, but also it's about just convincing Tories to to not bother going out to vote against them because they don't hate them enough to to bother doing so. And that is what all that stuff is aimed at. 
But by, of course, by sort of 2005, you know, Blair's been Prime Minister for eight years and you really have to sort of justify the project as it has emerged on its own terms. Like you can't keep promising that you're going to do a load of stuff you're obviously not going to do. And so, and that speech, that um, Phil Collins speech is absolutely, that is the speech where Blair says, you absolutely cannot do anything at all to mitigate or challenge or reverse the process of globalisation. The consequence of this is that basically the only thing governments can do is equip individual citizens to compete in a global labour market. And, you know, it's written in this in this almost sort of sadistic language. Like, you better, lo- you know, you basically, you know, you, you've got to learn to love this even though you hate it, you know. And it's, it's you know, it's attempting Sing to... Evoke, swim. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's worth keeping in mind, it marks the beginning of the end of Blair's premiership. I mean, it, it really, it's not just that it's not particularly popular with the public. I mean, the Parliamentary Labour Party you know, not long after this, start to make their manoeuvres to replace him with Brown because the Parliamentary Labour Party at that point are still not as right-wing as they would become, like after the 2010 election. And, you know, it's, you know, it's not what most of them ever signed up for, this kind of thing. You know, it's just saying, forget it. You know, we're not, it's just sort of pure neoliberalism and a sort of pure neoliberal sort of modernism which just says there's only one way, there's only one direction history is going in and it's towards kind of hyper-capitalisation at a global level, at a national level, at a local level. So sort of hype, well, I shouldn't say, that's not that's a term I just made up, So sort of hyper-capitalism. But I think it is also a sort of, in some ways, that speech remains one of the historically purest statements of a certain kind of third-way ideology. Uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting to reflect that, for example, neither Clinton or, or Obama ever had to give that speech because eight years into their term, they're finished, they're done. Yeah, they're not, they don't get to, they, they don't have another election to fight. So neither Clinton nor Obama ever got to the point where they had to justify the fact that eight years of them in government was not doing anything to restore social equality or social cohesion and that they hadn't been doing anything that even looked like it was trying to do that. Whereas that, that is exactly the point where Blair has to justify that. Blair has to justify the fact that all the social democratic promise of the new Labour project was utterly fictional. I was never really there. I mean, to be fair as well, I, I've always said about Blair, if you actually read the manifestos, rather than just listen to some of the headline rhetoric in some of the speeches, they never claimed to be doing anything other than what they did, actually, uh, which I think is sort of... Um, but of course, the vast majority of voters don't, didn't read manifesto, didn't read manifestos, and always assumed that by voting for a Labour government, they were voting for some sort of restoration of social democracy. And that is exactly the point where it's absolutely clear to everybody that, that is just not what Blair has any intention of doing. Also on that speech, you emphasise the extent to which New Labour was concerned with this question of, as you say, adapting citizens to the market. And you suggest that Labour took a more interventionist approach to doing so than was the case with the Conservatives. What do you think that was about? Well, I think this this is the central distinction to be made between liberalism or Victorian liberalism and neoliberalism. And that Victorian liberalism, classically really thought that government just shouldn't do anything for people for the most part and the the the, the strong would survive you know the fit the, the fittest would survive and the weak would you know wouldn't and and 
this was the doctrine of laissez-faire, you know, carried into the social realm, which informed, particularly, well, I say Victorian, early Victorian social policy. I mean, then you have the whole reaction against that, often led by the Conservative Party, actually, which introduces things like the factory reforms, etc. I mean, neoliberal theory in people like Hayek and Friedman had often sort of stated or implied that if government was going to do anything, what it should do is equip people to become self-motivated entrepreneurs. Actually, also, it's Joseph Schumpeter is an important contributor to that tradition. I remember one of the first books published about New Labour as a political, as a sort of political analysis is of New Labour was Alan Finlayson's book, and he he said that he what Blair was building was a Schumpeterian workfare state. So it was precisely it was a type of state in which the Schumpeterian ideal of the entrepreneur as the great driver of innovation and economic progress was going to be turned into a template which basically everybody, every citizen in every walk of life would be obliged or encouraged to follow, to adapt themselves to. Because unlike the Victorian liberals, they recognised that that was not a disposition that people took to automatically in some sort of natural yeah, way. Yes, well, of course, well, the, the sort of benign version of that liberal laissez-faire, it's like its first ideological iterations by people like Adam Smith uh, and arguably people like the Mills, um, just assumes that the way in which you know, the 18th century British bourgeoisie behave is actually how anyone would behave, like, given the opportunity. So it assumes that being a kind of appetitive, acquisitive, innovative sort of entrepreneur is the natural state for human beings. And the only reason everybody doesn't behave that way is because government and custom and tradition sort of inhibit them from doing so. And so the idea is if you just get a government out of the way, then you then everybody will express those tendencies. And of course, the vision of society, which is held by people like Adam Smith, is not, is not even really a capitalist society. It's a sort of perfectly distributed commercial society in which everybody is everybody is selling goods and services to each other but like everybody is kind of sharing from the the benefit sharing the benefits and you know he was really he i mean he said if governments do anything they had to prevent concentrations of you know monopoly power in the economy for example but by the time any of these ideas are informing things governments are actually doing by sort of the 1830s, of course, as always happens, what is actually being put into practice is some version of that which doesn't really look much like what the people who first thought of it were proposing, would it? It's a programme which suits the interests of powerful economic groups. And this idea of laissez-faire, this idea of government just sort of getting people out of the way becomes just an excuse uh, to massively, to have very, very low taxes and to have a very punitive regime of, you know, for managing uh, urban poor populations to prevent them from, you know, acting collectively or politically. You know, so you stick people in work, you know, it becomes an excuse to, you know, put poor people in workhouses, in, say, which are just sort of prisons, really, and and, and criminalise trade unions. You know, it's all just an excuse, really, uh, to be honest. And then there is a tradition to this day of right-wing, pro-capitalist, anti-worker, anti-democracy, political projects using this kind of imagine this rhetoric of laissez-faire um, to justify what they're doing. But then, what's happening with the neoliberals in the 1930s, when the neoliberal people at like Hayek are first formulating their ideas, is they are coming from that liberal tradition, but they are look they are looking at the world of communism and the New Deal and social dem democracy on the rise. And they said, oh dear, it's and clearly... And of, of fascism, of course. Oh, yes, and of fascism, of course. 
And they're saying, oh dear, it's clearly not true. They're just left to their own devices. Human beings are all individualistic entrepreneurs. Like in, in fact, left to their own devices, people would seem to tend to form these horrible collectivities, which you know do all kinds of all, all kinds of things which you know competitive petty bourgeois entrepreneurs don't actually like. So, uh, what would we do about that? And one of the conclusions they end up coming to is that what you should do about that is you should have governments will actually force everybody to behave like competitive bourgeois entrepreneurs. Everybody has to be you have you have to behave like a Smithian ideal of the commercial actor, whether you want to or not, and whether you are operating in a social sphere in which most people think that's appropriate or not. So that is always part of the neoliberal program, and the Thatcherite program has some elements of that. But is the Thatch Right program is also somewhat it's a sort of combination of that with indeed a more Victorian idea of just cutting taxes and cutting public spending, which is clearly very popular with a significant section of their base. And then the Blairite kind of formulation of neoliberalism, the third way formulation, is this sort of is this formulation whereby you don't necessarily you don't cut public spending at all, actually. But you divert it, you, you accompany increases in public spending with a programme to remodel uh, in public services, uh, most notably health and education, all kinds of public services, in such a way that they're actually consistent with this ideal. Uh, and my analysis of all this is always that, well, look, this is basically, these are the terms on which implicitly you know, the new Labour leadership is able to convince the City of London, you know, finance capital and its agents in the press and the media not to keep attacking them and to allow them to restore some of the lost funding for hospitals and schools. So basically, the deal in effect is, all right, schools are literally, you know, the, ro the roofs are literally falling in from years of underfunding. Yeah, okay, you can spend a load of money on schools, but provided what those schools now do is not do what they were doing for the past few decades, which is you know, try to equip students to become effective citizens of a modern democracy. No, 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 no. What they're going to do now is they're going to equip students to become competitive, individualised entrepreneurs in the labour market. I think, to be fair, one has to say about the Blairites, I mean, they do genuinely believe, people like Blair do genuinely believe that's all you can do. Like, they do genuinely believe that, like, if you don't do that, well, you're just equipping people for a world that doesn't exist anymore and it's never going to. So you have to do that. And, and they are genuinely committed to alleviating child poverty, for example, in order to enable everybody to compete with each other from a relatively le level playing field. So they do genuinely believe it. And I think they do genuinely... I mean, I think Blair does genuinely believe that there's absolutely nothing you can do about globalization i mean obviously there's a kind of double thing to that because it's also very clear by the early 2000s that brown and blair have for, particularly in their relationships with the european union have been fighting tooth and nail to push the, the trade the european union in a neoliberal direction you know every opportunity they get you know against you know resistance in some on some occasions even from the germans um, who are who are the people usually blamed for the, the neoliberal character of the EU as it emerges? So there is obviously a sort of double thing to saying, well, this is historically inevitable, we can't change it, and then bloody, like, obviously doing everything you can to make it happen. But of course, you know, that, that's a feature of many ideologies, you know, that, that you, you both declare some a certain future to be inevitable and then also work like a fanatic to make it happen. On that point about the way in which you believe that figures like Blair and Brown and the other leaders of, of New Labour were sincere about wanting to increase funding in working class areas and did indeed do so and did in fact care about working class poverty. 
So you suggest that the New Labour era is in some sense a more sort of pure form of neoliberalism. And is that then presumably because there is this combination of the inheritance of neoliberal ideology and its focus on adapting citizens to the market, but also that becomes easier for, for New Labour to, to engage in, paradoxically, because of their residual commitment to the working class. They can't simply abandon whole regions and communities as, as Conservatives could Well, do. it's partly that, but also the reason I say it's a purer form of neoliberalism than Thatcherism was is because it doesn't have this, this the same level of social conservatism. So it's really crucial to... Blair's legitimacy with uh, huge social constituencies, especially young people and the kind of and even older people amongst the urban middle classes, that they are committed to, for example, reducing, um, equalising the age of consent uh, for gay sex, that they are committed to a certain kind of cosmopolitan rhetoric, like despite their promises to Tory voters to be firm around immigration. Uh, I mean, they do. I mean, this is one. Of the, I mean, yeah, the Tories, <laughs> the claims made by, you know, UKIP and Tories that New Labour oversaw huge increases in mass uh, immigration are, are completely true. And uh, yeah, I'm not making a judgment on whether that was right, right or wrong. But a certain kind of social, so social liberalism of certain kinds was really crucial. And it's always been the case that that kind of social liberalism is obviously at a certain philosophical level more ideologically consistent with the neoliberal emphasis on personal freedom. Of course, uh, you know, I think I referred to you last time. I mean, yeah, people like um, Melinda Cooper have pointed out very accurately that, well, look, like people at Hayek, for example, you know, always did have a fairly conservative attitude to the family and obviously were, in sort of class terms, committed, not really committed to this kind of free, you know, the sort of free-floating individualism that some of their readers on the libertarian right sort of understood them to be committed to. And that's all absolutely true. Uh, but it's also true that uh, just uh, never minding what individual writers may have said uh, and not thinking about it in, in sociological terms for a moment, but just thinking at the level of sort of abstract philosophy. In terms of ideas that most people can grasp quite easily, there was it was clear by the early 90s that the Tories had a problem, that there was a contradiction between... Their, their repeated appeals to social conservatism on the one hand and their all their parallel appeals to a sort of you know, in, libertarian individualism in, in other parts of the program and although it's also true that there was there was as we've said this authoritarian and collectivist component to the new labor project certainly rhetorically at the start and then to some extent at the level of policy all the way through mm. they had it both ways yeah they did it is also true that New Labour did actually, was committed to certain kinds of social liberalisation. Um, actually, you know what, I think we tend to focus, I, I've, as we as people usually do, I've referred to the issue of like same-sex relationships, which is the thing, that is the single issue, like you see this really huge shift between, say, the late 80s and the early 2000s. You look at things like the British Social Attitude Surveys, it's absolutely huge. It's, just, it's the thing that people who are old enough to have lived through it still remember is just remarkable. Like, if you'd have told me in 1994 that we would have had out gay Tory MPs and a Tory government legalising gay marriage by the 2010s, I wouldn't have believed it. Or I wouldn't have believed, um, I would have been very surprised that you'd have seen that, but you wouldn't have seen like decriminalisation of like cannabis and ecstasy, for example. So that's been a big shift. But in in on, on in terms of scale, it, the real important thing is the changing attitudes to women in women in work, and it was really. It was the Blair government which really marked British government's finally completely accepting that the, it was a desirable policy objective to have all women, even women with small children, in work. 
And so provision for childcare, reforms to the wel- to welfare policy, reform to the treatment of single parents were all oriented around this idea that getting people into work was absolutely crucial. And of course... I, Whereas I, John Major was openly nostalgic about the 1950s. Well, he was at the level of rhetoric and there was this demonised, there was this period, there was moral panic and demonisation of single single mothers for a short, for a while under the Tories. And it was partly the fact that that was very unpopular, actually, which really was what marked a kind of turning point. It was the fact that the Tories tried demonising single mothers around sort of 95, like in the sort of dying years of the major government. And they did do it. They brought in some changes to the to welfare policy, which were very punitive towards single mothers. But... It was also it was it was very unpopular, and it was the it was its lack of popularity which made clear that 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 shtick which had worked for Thatcher, and even for Major up to a point, that shtick of basically doing a neoliberal socio-economic program, but you know putting these kind of you know these kind of tassels and bells on it, which were more based on a sort of you know nostalgic conservatism, just wasn't working anymore. That was seen as marking a real shift, and the Blair Brown governments were absolutely committed to women being in the workplace. And of course, of course, for Brown, I would say, to be absolutely clear, I don't think for Brown that was really, that was, it was a sort of convenient for him that that, that was adaptable to a purely neoliberal programme. I think in his own head and those of the people closest to him in the cabinet, what they thought they were doing was enabling working class women to experience the, the dignity and autonomy that came with being a member of the workforce. Of course, this completely failed to take account of the fact that what was happening at the time to the workforce, whether it was having all of its sources of dignity and autonomy stripped from it, you know, as pensions were flushed down the toilet and trade union, and absolutely nothing was done to increase union density. But in their minds, that's what they thought they were doing, to be honest. And also, it's very, it's very interesting to think about all these things we've just been talking about with reference to the question of what Labour MPs thought they were doing. Because the thing that was really striking to me, uh, and I know I've said this to you before, the thing that was really, really striking to me right up until the end of the, the Brown Labour government in 2010 is if you had a chat at this, of, with people who were in the cabinet. This was absolutely true of people like Andy Burnham at Miliband, for example, about what they thought they were doing. It was the fact that they thought that what Tories believed in was just this sort of pure right-wing libertarian, Victorian liberal laissez-faire, just let the poor die in the streets. Starting to become a little more plausible. Yeah, it is. Well, it is. Yeah, it is. Well, they thought that by doing that, by doing anything at all, for for those people, even if what they were doing was basically telling them, well, you will take a, a shitty job in a call centre or we will starve you to death. The, even by doing that, by, by going to the trouble of doing that, they were doing some sort of socialism and differentiating themselves from the Tories. Um, it was always a fantasy. And I think, you know, I've talked to people on podcasts, probably on this one before, about where that comes from. I think, to be honest, I think it came from the fact that yeah, the Tories they all knew at Oxford, you know, while they were at Oxford, were all swivel-eyed libertarians who would literally say, yes, let's just let the poor die in the street, ha, ha, ha. And so that's where they formed their self-conception of themselves as good people because they wouldn't do that. But they really couldn't... I remember sitting in a... I mean, I was sitting in a meeting years and years ago with um, 
Ed Miliband and Douglas Alexander and saying to them, you, you do understand that you're not not neoliberals just because you're willing to spend some money. That if what you're doing with that money is telling teachers they have to behave like entrepreneurial competitive retailers of a service and telling poor people, you know, they have to work in a call centre or you're going to starve to death, you're not not being neoliberal. You're just being a better kind of neoliberal. And frankly, they didn't, they, it was complete news to them that as a concept. Uh, and they really didn't have any their heads around it. So uh, this is partly why, you know, the, the idea of neoliberalism at that time became so important as a kind of analytical reference point. And of, But of course, you know, that is the thing which so many sort of cent- so-called centre-left commentators and, you know, just ordinary citizens and political actors still don't have their heads around today. They, they don't have their heads around that, which is why they can't understand why people on the left, which of course now includes like everybody under 40, that hate them so much and they think they can only conceptualise that hatred as, as a sort of pathology and as a sort of misunderstanding of, the, of reality. Because their reality is, well, obviously we're better than the Tories. Like, why would you just call us Tories? Obviously we're better than the Tories because we've spent money on people, we look after people. Those Tories would just let people die in the street. But as you say, the Tories are now trying to make that true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, well, arguably putting putting some wings under a more centrist politics as well. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah, yeah. Going back to Blair's speech, so on his attitude towards the trade unions, you write that he did not think of them as political opponents, but as misguided vested interests, blocking the path towards progress and and modernisation. And and obviously that contrasts heavily with the way in which Margaret Thatcher viewed the trade unions, which was both as real enemies, uh, but also as as powerful uh, antagonists, which, which they were. Presumably Blair is able to portray the unions as, as obstacles rather than enemies because they've been already largely defeated by the Conservative Party, but also because of the fact of his being leader of the Labour Party, he could hardly talk about them straightforwardly as the enemy, given their role in funding the party. Would you agree with that, or do you think there's something something else going on too? No, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it was partly... I don't think Blair ever even thought that much about the unions, one way or another, to be honest. But I, But it was this sort of... Um, it was this hangover from the the kind of the modernisation moment of the late eighties. This idea, well, the, that they were tr- that the unions like they needed the unions to change. I remember I did a talk. I was on a panel like years and years ago with Harriet Harman, uh, and Harman said, uh, "Well, we all, we were always trying to get the unions to modernise." Because I said, "Look, that one of the key things, as I've said many times since, one of the key things for which the Blair government should stand condemned forever is they did not do anything actively to raise union density." And the Blairite claim was always that there was some sort of good thing that the unions should be doing that they refused to do because they were dinosaurs who were stuck in the mud. And that re- that did resonate with people. It did have a kind of truth with people because it is something I still find myself saying to activists all the time today. The unions, they do move very slowly. You know, you've got to be patient with them. You know, you've got to accept they, that their internal cultures are so entrenched. They're such large institutions. So it did sort of sound plausible to activists that if if Labour ministers would say, well, yeah, we'd like to do something more for the unions, but they're so stuck in the past, you know, they can't, then we're trying to get them to reform themselves. Like, then we can do something to to actually actively help them. It did sort of sound What did they plausible. mean by that? What did they no, mean by nothing, modernising nothing, and nothing. reforming? They didn't, they didn't know what they meant. It was, all, it was just a complete... I mean, those terms just, cover. just, just became com- empty placeholders in Blairite rhetoric for, like, for just anything you could imagine, really. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. 
If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.